Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to start with me in Ephesians 3. Today is one of those hand-cramped Sundays, so I'm glad you're here. We're going to look at a ton of Scripture. I want to say this week I counted 72 slides. I found that you guys can take a lot, so I'm just going to give you more. It'll be good. We're going to start in verse 8. I don't want to belabor this point too much, but we've been spending the past 10 weeks going through dispensations, what they are finding out that it's an incredibly biblical word. Just a lot of it has been covered up either through translation or a lot of it has been covered up through erroneous theology. And so we're finding that God actually has certain ways that he works at certain times with certain people with the hopes and efforts of trying to reach the entire world so that they would see the hope of the gospel and be saved. That is God's desire. Isaiah 45, 22 is very clear about that. Ephesians 3, 8, we're going to look at this just briefly. This is Paul, to me, the very least of the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you should be praising the Lord for this because the gospel has come our way because of the disobedience of the Jewish people. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the, what's the word? The dispensation. The dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, that's us, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus the Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Am I on? I'm not. Now I'm on. Welcome. Okay. So if you notice, you probably have a little half sheet that's located in your chair. If for some reason you didn't get one and you would like one, just raise your hand. We can get you one. I'm always looking for Jansen's to take up the call. There you go. Thank you, Micah Jance. It's great. Fantastic. <laughs> We're going to go through this. Every once in a while, I've been trying to change up the definition so that we understand what this is in hopes that as you receive these papers, you want to research this a little bit more, maybe grab some of these books, read them for yourselves, get educated on this subject, because I will tell you this, you cannot understand from Genesis to Revelation if you don't recognize that God progresses in how he works with people in different ways at different times. Along the back wall, is that it? Are we out? We're out. Wow. There's some right here. I have four over here. We have five. Four or five. Son, you want to earn a jewel in your crown? Here you go, buddy. Put, put down your book. Put down your book. There you go. He's sitting in here taking notes on my sermon. That's frightening. Dad stinks. Okay. What is the definition that we're dealing with? I've given you a new one. Dispensationalism is a system of biblical interpretation which recognizes various distinct periods in the outworking of the divine administration of human affairs. In other words, let's break it down real simple. God, because He's the Creator, He owns everything. 
but because he's gracious, he desires to impart a stewardship, how we handle stuff to us, various people at various times. And it's always with the goal of making himself known to all people. So there's a fourfold pattern that we find. Responsibility, there's the entrusted authority. The failure, we're sinners, so we're always going to fail. Unfaithfulness is going to happen in some way. God has to judge sin. In fact, if we went through all the attributes of God and we said, which one of these is most displeasing to us, we would probably choose justice every time. Because justice means we're being held to task for the things that we did wrong. And God, being a just God, and cannot be anything other than what he is, must be just in this. But what's incredible about him, because of the infinitude of his being, is he is able also to balance out justice with righteousness. And this is what makes something so incredible about somebody being justified by faith alone in Christ alone, an incredible doctrine that we've got to wrap our minds and our hearts around. Because when God sees me, me, he sees me through his son. He sees me through that sacrifice. He sees me paid for by the blood. He sees me clothed in righteousness. And I'm like, but God, I can't stop doing this sin and I can't stop thinking about this and my mouth needs to be cleaned up. And Stop. What did my son do? Stop. What has my son said? Stop. I've already gathered everybody in eternity, past, present, and future, and let everybody know, Jeremy is declared righteous because he's in my son. That's the grace of God. That is the message. Here's what we saw last week, the seventh dispensation, the tribulation. And this is the point that we're coming up on. The church will be raptured. So many people make fun of the rapture. It blows my mind. It's on almost every page of Paul's writings. You find it all throughout the general epistles at the end. It's amazing how people could scoff at a doctrine that the Bible talks so much about. What is the responsibility they have during the tribulation time? Repent and believe the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Fear God and give Him glory. Remember, the gospel of the kingdom is not necessarily the gospel of grace and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But because the gospel of the kingdom will be preached on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ, it will include His salvific work for us. So that'll be part of it. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the announcement that the king is coming. And that's what's going to be what happens. Now, let me pause for just a second and step up on a little soapbox here, okay? And, and, and let's understand this. We're in an incredibly interesting place in history. We're the church. We've had all these incredible privileges. We have the completed word of God. We have the indwelling spirit. We have the, the, the gifts We have eternal security. We have all of these incredible things before us. Complete forgiveness of sin, all sin, shame, and guilt nailed to the cross, done. We are a privileged people. But the problem is that sometimes we become spoiled brats in these things. We have so much, we don't know how to appreciate hardly anything. We are at a place right now where we have got to start taking up the attitude of prophets. The world is going down. Pay attention. The Bible has always told us this is going to happen. But this is why we also see such charges as redeem the time. Make best use of it. Don't let a second go without it being worth 
something, eternally speaking. Or this way, don't store up treasures where rust is going to get it, moths are going to come in. Man, there's nothing worse than coming in to get out your winter stuff and moths got in that coat before you did. That's a bad day. But what does he say? Instead, store up at eternity. Why? Because moths can't get there. Because rust won't get it, thieves won't steal it, and nobody's going to auction it off under your nose. It is in a permanent, eternal storage locker. It is there forever, waiting for you. Live in that way. Live in that way. We are no longer a Christian nation. We have got to tell people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how He died on their behalf for their sins in their place so that they could receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This has to be our message. We call that evangelism, but we've got to be prophets in this. Judgment is coming. The Bible tells us this. You're just some crazy kook, you right-winged fool. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. For so they did to the prophets. It's no coincidence that that's what Jesus connected that to. Our responsibility during that time, fear God, give Him glory. What was the failure? The world refuses to respond to the 144,000 because they will go out and they will preach. The two witnesses, it seems like they're stationed mainly in Jerusalem. And also the outpouring of God's wrath to try to get people's attention. The judgment that will take place is the Antichrist and the false prophet are sentenced and the armies of the nations are slaughtered. What is the grace? An undeserving world receives an all-deserving ruler and king. Now I inserted this quote back in here to help you see. We brought it up at the beginning but to see where we're going. God uses the dispensations to reveal that the deep-seated reason for man's complete failure governmentally is because of his innate wickedness and depravity which causes him to leave regeneration out of all of his governmental notions. Now pause for a second and let me give you a picture of what that quote means. How would you respond if Congress got together to decide something and some people got together and they stood up and said, you know what? We should pray about this and seek the Word of God and ask what He wants in this situation and then make our decision." Some of us would pass out. Some of this have been trying to vote this in for 40 years. It's never worked. What is the problem? I want what I want. We always hear this stuff about lobbyists. People getting in there, maybe underhanded, getting a senator on their side about something. Well, this has got some different benefits for this group over here. That bill ain't even about that. Yeah, but we couldn't really get them on board to vote for the bill if we gave them some. That's called swindling. That's called, in the Hebrew, dirty, dirty. That's what that's called. We would all freak out. The greatest failure that we see all throughout any government, of any place, at any time, is it doesn't have God's life in the midst of it. That's the problem. That's God's goal in the kingdom. So now the eighth dispensation. And that is the millennial kingdom. Turn back with me, if you will, to Ephesians 1. I want to draw your attention to this. In Ephesians 1, this is part of the blessings, the every spiritual blessing that we have in the heavenlies in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you are in a permanent 
location of him. You cannot be moved. And with that comes all of these incredible blessings that you did not earn. It's just grace upon grace pouring upon you. And one of the most fantastic things that we see here is look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention. So what was previously not known, He's now made known in His kindness towards us is what fueled Him to want to do so. He says here that He purposed in Him, in Christ, with a view to an, what's the word? Dispensation. To a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heavens and things on the earth. One of the great things that we know about is God has seen fit in Christ to reveal to the church the millennial kingdom. The fact that God is going to bring this kingdom reign on the earth. It's not going to be spiritual. It's not already here, but not yet here. Every time you deal with the kingdom in Scripture, you are dealing with a literal set-up time of which Christ will physically rule on the throne of David, as promised in 2 Samuel 7. And from His throne, it will be theocratic, it will be justice, it will be mercy and love that will fly out of this. But He is the one who builds this kingdom. No Christian builds this kingdom. Get off that bandwagon. It's not biblical. This is Christ's kingdom, and he builds it. Let him do it. He'll do better than I will. You should see some of the Lego creations in our house. He's going to do a much better job than me. Just give it to him. Good quote. Everything that God is doing has a forward-looking goal. There is a coming administration or dispensation of fullness of times where God will head up or sum up all things in Christ. When this kingdom occurs, all things are summed up or headed up in Christ. This involves all things in the universe, whether heaven or on earth, whether it is angels or humans, spiritual things, material matters, all things will come under the headship of Christ. I encourage you, if you want a great book to read that you won't exhaust any time soon, He Shall Reign Forever by Michael Vlock. It's great. So now we got to prep to this moment when this happens. Number one, Israel accepts her king. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if you want to write it down, please. This is from Isaiah 28. There are so many passages for this. I just tried to grab one that would maybe help us get on the page of what's going to happen. What's going to happen is Israel is finally going to accept Jesus. That's going to be a huge deal. The time of their partial hardening is over. Once the church is raptured and, and, and their mission is over, Israel now comes to the front of history. God is working with them once again through seven years of tribulation. It says here, Isaiah 28, 5, in that day, Yahweh of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. It's going to fight me already. The spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment and a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And that's exactly how it will happen. We're going to see that in just a second. There's also a preparation for reigning. Take your Bibles with me. Go to Revelation 19. And let's see exactly what comes down the pipe. Revelation 19. I'm going to say this. Believe me now. Research it later. This is the fifth and final showing of Jesus returning in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 20. And the beast, refresher from last week, who is this? Ooh. 
You guys sound like somebody dropped a speaking spell down a flight of stairs. Who is it? The Antichrist. Good. Good thing I wrote it up there for you. Good job. So notice, the beast was seized, and with him, the false prophet, the religious leader who tries to get everybody under a one-world religious system. And if you don't bow down to the image that he designs of the false prophet or take the number of the beast on your hand or on your forehead, you will be beheaded during this time. And that's how many of the Christians die. Who perform, and can people get saved during the tribulation? Absolutely they can. Somebody asked me that. That didn't seem to be clear. The two witnesses will be preaching. The 144,000 will be preaching. And if you read the end of Revelation 7, innumerable amounts of Gentiles. There will probably be more evangelization that takes place during the seven years of tribulation per capita than has ever happened before in the past 2,000 years. It's going to be a massive revival. But it's also going to be a lot of people that know when they come to faith in Christ, their life is immediately on the line in this situation. That's how that regime is going to be run. So notice, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived. That's how you know Satan's in there. Those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Justice being served. And the rest, this is the kings of the armies and possibly the armies themselves. I wouldn't doubt it, but it's hard to determine there. Were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Go over to verse to chapter 20. Don't let the chapter break destroy you. Then, next, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss. The abyss is also known in some of our translations as the bottomless pit. This is where the angel Apollyon comes from. The word means destroyer. Many people have labeled this on top of another name that Satan holds. Chances are maybe, but we don't need to be dogmatic about it. And a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for... Okay, I'm going to write that out just because it's been so controversial, people saying, well, it says a thousand years, but that's not what it means. I don't believe that. Here we go. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. Satan removed. Now think about this. Because Satan's whole modus operandi is the idea of oppression, is the idea of deceitfulness, is the idea of lying. He's the father of lies. He's been a murderer from the beginning. So now that dominant influence is completely removed from the earth after this tribulation time. This is hard for us to step into. The, the, the church is gone. Okay, that's important for us to recognize. The church came back with Christ. All people of the church are going to have glorified bodies at that time. So we're dealing with people who have been saved during the tribulation, probably gave their lives during the tribulation. Some of them made it through alive, and that's a good thing. They were able to avoid harm's way in doing that. But we're dealing with like a whole other world of thinking than what we're used to. He sealed it over him so that he would not, here it is, deceive the nations any longer. Now pause. If he's locked away and this doesn't happen and this is how he is designated, what does it tell you that he's been doing all this time? Deceiving the nations. So when we see nations doing crazy, awful, murderous, lying, sinful, deceitful things, who do you think's behind that poking and prodding it? It is Satan. Notice, until the... Oh, here's that inconvenient word again. Thousand years were completed. Notice it's going to come to an end. After these things, after what things? 
there we go. He must be released for a short time. Now here is when he establishes the kingdom. It's actually in Scripture. So it happened in that day that the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven. Notice that it's celestial in judgment. This is Isaiah 24. Forgive me, just write that down. You have to turn there. He will punish the hosts of heaven on high and kings of the earth on earth. Okay, They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, after many days, anybody want to guess how long that many days is they might be held for? Oh man, look at you guys, Bible scholars through and through. They will be punished. Verse 23, then, remember, anytime you see then, you're dealing with prophecy. It's a timing word. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Some people would say this is heaven. Some people would say this is earth. Some people would say that the same thing. He's ruling. Doesn't matter where it is, he rules. Okay? And his glory will be before his elders. Now back to Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw thrones. What do thrones entail? Crowns, kings, kingdoms, power. Yeah, you guys are getting it, man. Can't put anything past you guys. I love it. And they sat on them. Now here's a question. Who are they? I believe it's everybody who returned with Christ. I believe it's Jesus sitting down and us. And we're going to see a differentiation here. They sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Them, they, same people. And, notice, in addition to that, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their, one, testimony of Jesus, and two, because of the Word of God. If you read through Revelation from beginning to end, you will find these two qualifiers for people in that time. John even tells them, I was being held captive on the Isle of Patmos for two things, the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. And they were killed, why? Because they held fast to the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. Two things that are constantly brought up. And those who had not, had not read, there we go. Have fun with it, guys. Worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on his forehead or his hand, and they came to life. Now notice, they, who are these? The ones who were beheaded, they came to life, so it's not these, and reigned with Christ for an undetermined amount of time. The rest of the dead, interesting, it's telling us about where everybody and where they're going, the rest of the dead, unsaved, did not come to life until this undetermined amount of time was completed. Now, this phrase right here, this is the first resurrection, is describing verse 4. It's almost like this is a parenthesis that's giving you, well, what about those people? Well, what about those? Well, what about, if okay, if the church has come back with Jesus and they are being enthroned and they're going to have the opportunity to judge and sit there alongside Christ 
in his kingdom. And then you're going to see the people who were martyred during the tribulation, they're going to be raised at that time, and they're going to be given some thrones and responsibility in order to reign at that time. What about the people who aren't saved? Those are the people that we're dealing with. Well, they don't come to life until after the thousand years is completed. This, what we're talking about right here, is the first resurrection. And I believe that has to do in connection with the rapture. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, and we'll find this here in just a minute. Let me go ahead and give it to you. The lake of fire has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for an undetermined amount of time. Does it seem pretty simple when it all unfolds? Okay, that's my introduction. Here we go into the sermon. Number one, the responsibility, the entrusted authority. How do you entrust an authority during the millennial reign of Christ? What is expected of the people of the earth? Now, let me pause for just a second and and write this down if you want to. Matthew chapter 25, verse 36 to the end of the chapter gives us a judgment that takes place. It's called the sheep and the goats judgment that takes place, okay? And when that takes place among the nations, it is all in respect to whether or not the Gentile nations were responsive to the 144,000 while they preached during the tribulation. That's a judgment that takes place once Christ comes and establishes and before the actual reign kicks off. Is Pete in here? He's not? I can't ask him that question. That's okay. Pete knows. There's an, I think there's like 70 days that happen in between the time of the establishment of this kingdom and when the reign actually begins because there's a lot of preparatory things that take place in order to transform it. He has all the references on that. He's a prophecy guy, not me. But for this, we do need to turn back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is fire. Isaiah 11. Because this is telling us exactly how the prophecy goes, exactly how the Messiah will be installed, exactly what his heritage will be, exactly and how in tune with God, how in fellowship with God he is, because the Spirit of God will rest upon him being part of the Trinity. So watch this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Sometimes this can be translated as a branch. But who was Jesse? David's? dad that's good to know king david's dad was jesse is jesus christ directly related out of that lineage he is in two ways through solomon and through his other child nathan through both of them nathan coming through and going through mary solomon coming through the kingly line and coming through joseph kingly and blood both meeting in one person in the incarnate jesus christ god is super cool Okay, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, what is this? The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. In other words, it won't just be a rumor or hearsay situation. It's not going to be, well, I saw this and this is what I thought going on. 
He doesn't have to rely on his senses in order to exact justice perfectly in the millennial kingdom. He will rule with the rod of iron and he will do so with unseen faculties. Why? Because he's Jesus and he can do that. It says here, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth and will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. You want to know about that? That's Psalm 2. Notice here, notice these words, with righteousness, with fairness. Notice it says, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. I believe that's the sword coming. It's not bad breath. Don't go to there, okay? But it's the sword coming out of his mouth. Somebody get him some Listerine. Just kidding. Here we go. Verse 5 and 6. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. Faithfulness, the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. What? All the mothers are freaking out, right? And the winged child will put his hand on the viper's den. In other words, the millennial kingdom will be as such to where this isn't just some sort of spiritual revolution that's going on. This is an entire brand new overmaking and overhaul of the earth. Doesn't he say, behold, I make all things new? He's doing that right before our eyes so that we can see. What he's going to touch here is not just people's lives, as important as that is. He's not just going to rule in a way of equity and justice amongst people's problems or anything that they would have as conflict during the millennial kingdom, because that will happen. There are human beings who come into that situation. But the idea is he's going to take everything that was scorched across the earth and all of it is going to spout up brand new. And it's going to be amazing throughout the entire existence this is what jesus can do if this doesn't light your fire your wood is wet please pray about that because this type of overhaul is way more important than anything that the home channel is showing you they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain what do we find the world is characterized by now for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the lord uh, this is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, when the new covenant actually goes into action. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover as the waters cover the sea. Then, in that day, good in times language, the nations, Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse. Everybody see that word resort? Interesting word. It's the idea of frequent. It's the idea of um, they can't wait to get together. We just can't stay away any longer. We got to meet up someplace. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse and who will stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples. He will be the rallying point. He will be where everybody wants to come. I just can't wait today. we got to leave home. Let's go get in the Lord's presence. He might teach us something new today. We can worship Him together. It's going to be everybody flocking there because it's going to be a time of an incredible, immense worship service. Notice, and His resting place will be glorious. Amen. Regardless of where you are on the earth, you will want to make your way to where He has positioned Himself on the throne. What is the failure? 
Go back to Revelation chapter 20. The failure that takes place. When you deal with the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25, one great thing that you learn is that people who are living, actual flesh and blood human beings, who make it through this horrible tribulation period, are ushered into the 1,000 year millennial reign in their bodily forms. And they can actually live as human beings amongst that time. Now that won't be us, because we're raptured before the seven years tribulation happens. The judgment seat of Christ takes place. We are granted glorified bodies at the time of the resurrection. Our bodies are transformed. The perishable will put on the imperishable. And in doing so, we will then receive our positions in the coming kingdom of where we will rule and rank alongside our sovereign Jesus. But notice here, Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, this indeterminate amount of time, completed, sounds like a definite stopping point to me, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, immediately everybody goes, ooh, 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 Why? See if you can put it together. Watch this. And will come out to do what? What he's always done. He is a deceiver of the nations. Notice, which are in the four corners of the earth, all over the earth. Now, see this phrase right here? Gog and Magog. People often go to Ezekiel 38 and 39 in order to place this. Here's the problem. Because they have the same designation does not mean that it's talking about the same issue. Context always determines the details. Okay? So how should we understand this? If you research Ezekiel 38 and 39, you find out that this is a war that takes place and it seems like that Russia gets together with Iran and they decide to come down and they're going to attack Israel from the north. And the Lord intercedes in such a supernatural way as to where He absolutely destroys all of those regimes trying to come against His people. That is something that takes place after the rapture, but before the peace treaty in Israel is signed. And some people actually believe that it's because of the supernatural intervention that takes place that the Antichrist is able to slip in there and say, yeah, that was me. And all of a sudden, he's now jettisoned into a position of power and respect. And we want to hear more what this person has to say. Wow, they really got things going for them. They're going to be a good guy someday. And we want to get on the bandwagon early for this. And this leads to his ascendancy of power. This Gog and Magog is probably a phrase that is used so that the reader who is familiar with that would be like, oh, like it was in that day, so it will be here. Now, if any of you have ever gotten upset with somebody, and of course you'd never say this out loud, and nobody at our church ever talks this way, but you'd say, she's nothing but a Jezebel. Okay? Now, we never say that, ever. But if we were doing so, are we talking about that, that she's that nasty queen from the Old Testament that was Ahab's wife? Is that what we're talking about? No, we're not. But we are taking that old designation of what we would have some frame of thought on and we're imposing upon somebody who's just not a nice person. That's this type of idea. So, the Gog and Magog thing, it's a word relation thing. Notice what's going to happen. They're going to be gathered together. Satan is going to gather them together for what? War. We haven't needed it this entire time. In fact, we're actually told in a couple of different places to where if you've got a sword, beat it into a plowshare. It's not about war anymore. We're not bloodthirsty anymore. Christ reigns, and He's everything, and He's all that we need. So we don't have this struggle anymore because He's here to make all things right. 
Well, notice, Satan wants to do, he wants to make war. Notice, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Does everybody see what's going on? Does everybody see it? And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Who are these people? Who are these dastardly people? They are the offspring of the people who were brought alive, living human flesh, into the millennial reign of Christ. And all they've ever known is the reign of Jesus. They've never known anything else. They've never had Satan enticing them or tempting them or oppressing them in any way. They don't have a clue what spiritual warfare is. They don't know. They just know that they're children of these people who had some weird things go on and they were brought alive in here and we have a king who's been reigning for such a long time and you actually find out that they're unregenerate people. Time bears this out because of how quickly they want to side with Satan and rebel against this regime. Now here's the interesting thing. Aren't we in the millennial kingdom here in this time and place? Doesn't Jesus rule perfectly? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Has he ever been a bad guy? Why well, I love you and you and you, but you, you, yeah, you're trash, go away. He doesn't do that. His love is for all. His kindness is for all. He only desires the best of intentions for all of us, which is all in conformity with his will. There's no sin in him. And yet all it takes is for Satan to be released for a moment. And that depravity that is lodged within the human heart comes alive and desires to strike out against the most perfect king that anyone has ever known. The most perfect rule that anyone has ever had. Guys, we can't vote this. No matter how well we try and no matter how concentrated our efforts are, Jesus Christ reigns perfectly and yet the human heart is so depraved it can't handle it. How's the verse go? The heart of man's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here's what you see. And so now they decide Satan's going to gather them all for war. Let's march up. Let's surround them. Let's take them by force. Here's the judgment. First, there's a judgment that takes place on the earth, and it's the very next part of this same verse. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's how God feels about it. Done. That's it. It's over. Short-lived rebellion, stamped out. Now here's another thing. And the devil, who deceived them. Now here's the thing. Were they responsible for the decision they made to rebel against the king? Absolutely. Did Satan deceive them? It's not much different from the Adam and Eve situation, is it? Satan was suggestive and everybody said, you know what, my heart really wants that. I think I want to do exactly what I ought not to do. I'm going to go do that. Here, let me stick my finger in the light socket. Let me put my hand on that wet paint. Let me not think of a gorilla. That's it. Everything we're told not to do, the heart just goes for it, man. So notice, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where, just in case you forgot these fun guys, the beast and the false prophet are also are. Notice that word. Still there, still burning, still suffering, still tormented. But they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, no end to it. But there's also a judgment that takes place in heaven. 
Then I saw a great white throne. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. Don't get these two confused, please. There's a great white throne that comes forward. And this is for the unsaved. This is those who would be resurrected at the end of the 1,000 years. And him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, there's no place found for them. And I saw the dead. There they are. And if you back up in the chapter, you'll find it back in, in, in uh, 20 as well. The great and the small standing before them. In fact, uh, let me see here. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were completed. The dead, great and small. Notice that that doesn't matter here. They're standing before the throne. Books, plural, were opened. And another book, no plural, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. And what do the books contain? According to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in the death in Hades. Notice. Underworld. Gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. Every one of them, here it is again, look at this. According to their deeds. Will their works suffice to get them in good with the king at this point? No. Then death and Hades, hell, the actual abode of hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is much worse than hell. But death itself, there's no need for death anymore at this point. So both of them are thrown in. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, no S, of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we've talked about this before. But imagine the great white throne, all the unsaved gather in front. There's one book over here, and there's many books over here. And the first thing that Jesus does as people comes up is he goes through the books. What were their works like? Had they ever heard the gospel? How much did they know about me? Were they in rebellion against me or just flat-out ignorance of me? I think the ignorance part is something that we're going to answer for at the judgment seat of Christ if we don't tell people about what he's done for them. But here are these people, and he's weighing out their works. Have they done anything worthy to be merited into heaven? You find out they're not. But then he gives them a second opportunity, the book of life. And I can't find their name in here either. Jesus is a thorough judge, giving them every opportunity possible in order to get somehow into those good graces that have now passed away, and it's just not possible. So many people say, well, the gospel is so narrow, there's only one way. Pause, man. I see Jesus trying to make every way possible. There's only one way to the Father, yes. But as far as, well, I'm only going to reach those people, he doesn't do that. He's trying to make the gospel a universal presentation for all people so that they can believe and be saved. That is his heart's desire. So notice, if they're not there, they're thrown into the lake of fire. What is the grace on the other side of this? Go to Revelation 21, look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Everybody see that? Husband, stop for a second, man. Think. This gives you a chance to get in good with your ladies. You ready? Do you remember what it was like standing down there at the aisle? Shoulders back, chest out, right hand over left. Ditto. 
Think about that. Remember that? You might have had a minister next to you. All of a sudden, some doors opened. Music started to play a different tune. She appeared. And at that moment, anytime I'm doing a wedding, I always try to set this up well. The photographer wants that shot. Because it's like a, right? Your face just screams, jackpot. Okay? It does. It does. What's sad is when she comes through and the husbands are like, you know, you don't want that recorded for the rest of your life. Those are the pictures that go away, but she never forgets. I remember it. She popped through the doors and I was like, ah, I almost want to do like a, right? Yeah! Score! I win! Thank you, Jesus! Right? Great day. Think about this. God has been patiently waiting all this time. He's been waiting for perfection to rule. He's been waiting for nothing more than to bring the most perfect woman to His Son and say, there's nothing but happiness to be had. Where's death in this? Go on. Where's sin? What is that? What do you mean by sin? I don't know that word. What about murder? What language is that? These are all concepts that we have splattered across the pages of our newspapers every day that in this time it does not exist. No one knows anything about it. It is pre-eating the fruit Eden kind of mentality. It's stuff that could be true. But in that situation, it doesn't have to be anymore. God has redeemed us from all of that. Not just redeemed our souls. Not just redeemed our bodies. Not just redeemed the earth. Redeemed our very thinking. Redeemed our very hearts out of all of this mess and misery that we find ourselves in. Every reason why we're ever stressed out under the sun, guess what? Go on. Never again. There's no need for it. There's no place for it. There's no reason to have it. God never said, man, I can't get this done without sin. It never happens that way. Sin was our idea. Not God's. Now it comes back into a right standing as it always should have been as God desired and intended it to be. So notice, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Jackpot! I heard a loud voice, it was Jeremy, from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. Here it is, guys. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Why? Because tears have no place there either. Pain has no place. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right for these words are faithful and true. Then he said, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Don't mess up the gospel. It's all about what God gives to us, not what we do for God. He gives the water of life without cost. Doesn't cost you anything. Costs Jesus everything. Notice this. He who overcomes, those who are believers, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Close, familiar relationship. But, here's the warning. For the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers and immoral persons, and this idea, of course, is dealing with sexual immorality, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let this be a warning. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, my first question would be, why? What about Him is so bad that you don't want to have a relationship with Him? What is so horrible that He has done to push you away? Because all He's ever done is die for you and give His life to you so that you could live an abundant life and have eternal life here and now. That sounds like a pretty one-sided situation and you come out on the better on that end. What happens apart from that? No life, no eternity with God. The lake of fire is the only place that is fit for people who are absent of God's life. He cannot have a relationship, and that's why they are segmented and separated in this time. So what is the eighth dispensation, the millennial kingdom? What is the responsibility? Well, worship the king of kings. He's in charge, he rules, he sits on the throne, it's his way, period. It is a perfect rulership, and so the responsibility is to respond in worship and adoration to him. What is the failure, the satanic rebellion against the rule of Jesus? What is the judgment? Well, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment for all who are unsaved. But what is the grace, the new heavens and the new earth? Great quote, just found it this morning. This is the reason why it's not in there, but I read it and I thought, man, that's so good I got to do it, but I wasn't going to reprint your papers because I like to not waste paper. So here we go. The last dispensation is the kingdom. And in it, God tests out in the fullest way the divine idea of what government should be. He places His own Son on the throne and gives Him absolute centralized authority. The net result of the thousand-year reign is that this is the only correct method of government. But even authority centralized in deity is not fully satisfactory so long as depraved man is present. Consequently, we do not see a condition fully pleasing to God until we enter the eternity period. The personal message to the individual soul which comes to us through the dispensations is that no theory of personal living will do except that which unhesitatingly recognizes the preeminence of Jesus Christ and gives to Him without question the first place in every problem of life. That's incredible. Because here's why the dispensation matters in the here and now, even though it's future. Number one, I hope it fuels you to want to share the gospel with people. Think about the people in your life. Who do you not want to be there with you at the millennial reign of Christ? Those are the people that don't exist, right? They don't exist because we want everybody there. We want every single person. God wants every single person. That's why he, He's not considered slow as some people count slowness. He waits. He's long-suffering with people so that they can hear the gospel and believe. They will not hear if we don't tell. Recognize that. We have a responsibility to the nations to share the gospel with people. We have Trunk or Treat coming up, an incredible responsibility to the city of Portage to share the gospel with people. 
It's going to be a good time, but it's going to be a serious time of telling people that Jesus has died for their sins and risen from the grave. Take advantage of this because it has eternal ramifications. We see it. A second thing that's important to also think about is whatever problems that we're dealing with in life right now and whatever we see, recognize it as it truly fits in the grand scheme of everything that God is doing. God is doing infinitely greater things we could ever understand. No situation is as bad as we often think it is. We actually find out that there's a great redemption that happens on the other side of it. Number three, I'm going to say this. If you want to send me an email or talk to me after church, that's fine. But I beg you and plead with you, please. And I know that you guys think I'm crazy sometimes. Pray for your government leaders. We're told to lift up holy hands to pray for all people in authority. But at the same time, stop caring so much about what they're doing. Stop it. Pray for them. But stop caring about it. Like we're expecting something better than deceitfulness and sin. And Has anything really changed? Or has everything just gotten worse? It's not our King. Our King rules in righteousness. Our King doesn't need sin. Our King doesn't need to give $6 billion to Islamic terrorists and then turn around and pledge support and words to Israel. Wake up and recognize, man. Our country is still killing unborn children at an alarming rate. We have much greater problems that be solved through prayer and the almighty hand of God moving upon people rather than thinking that sometime I'm going to carry up a sign or I'm going to cast a vote in some machine that doesn't actually work, that that's going to change things. Stop buying into this cartoon, man. Let's get beyond it and let's start living with eternity in mind. Not now. Eternity in mind. Eternity is what will fuel today to be worth living. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your mercy in giving us the scriptures, telling us the end, spelling out for us about the coming kingdom, that it will be glorious, that it will be full of worship, that we will hold privileged positions, that we will never be apart from you, that we will look upon your face, that we will see you for who you truly are. Glorious and abounding in love steadfast in your devotion to us as you already are now. But Lord, just to be able to stand before you and receive the full effect of that. Father, may that burn in our hearts. Move us where we need to be. Tell us what we need to say. Point us where we need to go. Because the world needs to hear. And we're not going to stay here much longer. Our time is short but let's make it an effort to take as many people with us as possible. Thank you, Jesus, because the Gospel makes that amazing. We pray it in Your name. Amen.